So our scripture reading today comes from uh, Luke chapter 18, as we are back in Luke. I'm very grateful for, uh, for Rich's willingness to fill the pulpit last Sunday. And if you weren't here, I would encourage you uh, to, uh, to go ahead and listen to that sermon. Uh, he preached a, a standalone sermon on Ruth chapter 1. On uh, on Naomi, and it is a uh, as as a friend of mine would have said, it's a, a it was a gospelicious sermon. So uh, I would encourage you to uh, to listen to that if you haven't heard it already. But today we're back in Luke chapter eighteen. Uh, uh, we're at the end of Luke eighteen, beginning in verse thirty one, and reading through to the end of the passage of chapter nineteen of eighteen. So I invite you, if you're able. To stand with me for the reading of God's word. So Luke 18, beginning in verse 31. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. When he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. So in one sense, we could have taken this paragraph and this first section and attached it to what we looked at previously two weeks ago. Uh, In one sense, you've got in verses 28 to 30, you've got Peter observing uh, that the apostles had left their homes in order to follow Jesus. And it's in a passage where uh, Jesus is even commending them that, listen, like even it even if you lose your family, even if you lose your home, even if you lose the things that you lose in order to gain the kingdom, it is, it is well worth it. And, and so then this next paragraph would have been going on to show it's not really, though, about what the apostles, what the disciples, what you are willing to lose or to give up or to suffer in order to gain the kingdom. It's really, first and foremost, about what Jesus 
is willing to give up, is willing to suffer, is willing to face in order to usher in the kingdom of God. But there's a sense in which, as I read it, it seems like there's another way that, the, that Luke is trying to tie it also to the next passage, to the healing of the blind man. Even with the first word uh, put on Jesus' lips, Jesus speaks to the, the apostles and he says specifically to them, he's talking just to his 12 now, his closest, his most intimate friends. And he says, see or look. The Son of Man, we are going to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. This is not the first time that Jesus announces to his disciples that he is going to die. In fact, if you have an ESV Bible or any of your Bibles that use titles, you'll notice that they kind of spoil that for me. Because they even title this section, Jesus foretells his death a third time. Now, this is helpful in some senses. One of the ways it's helpful is because you're reminded that these titles are not inspired, nor are they without error. Because in Luke, this is the seventh time Jesus has mentioned that he is going to die. Now, some of those are allusions to it, and some are very specific. But Jesus has now told his disciples seven times, sometimes just his disciples, sometimes entire crowds. But in Luke 5, in Luke 5.35, Jesus says, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast then. In other words, he's saying there's going to be a day when I am taken away, and there will be mourning. In Luke 9.22, he says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. In Luke 9.43, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. In Luke 12, verse 50, though it's again, it's more of an allusion to, alluding to it, but he says very clearly, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it happens. So he's not talking about some camp retreat he's going on and he's going to get baptized while he's on his retreat. He's talking about some sort of baptism that's going to be poured out onto him, a baptism that fills him with distress. He's talking about his death. In Luke 13, verses 32 to 35, he says, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O oh, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. And in Luke 17, he says, As lightning flashes and lights up the whole sky from one end to the other, so the Son of Man will be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. 
And then in today's passage, now the seventh time, he says, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. You know, sometimes people like to get into sort of theological arguments over, well, who really killed Jesus? And in all of these, when you look through Luke, at one point, Jesus says at the beginning, he says he's going to be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes. And so his rejection is, is the religious leaders of Israel. Here it says he will be handed over to the Gentiles. So it's not just the religious leaders, but it's also the Gentiles will execute and reject him. He says, I will be rejected by this generation. All of Israel will reject Jesus. And in Luke 9, one of the passages we read, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Just the generic, all of mankind. If there's ever a question about why Jesus died, the answer is me. I am why Jesus died. I killed Jesus. But he says here that everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets is going to be accomplished. And the prophets are full of prophecies concerning the coming Messiah. And so uh, the men are reading through the book of Isaiah in our men's Bible studies on Tuesday mornings. And we just read in Isaiah 7, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And every uh, late November, early December, we focus on this in church and remember the prophecy, the promise that a, a virgin would conceive. And Micah 5, also another very popular Advent prophecy. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old and from ancient days. Matthew himself ascribes Hosea 11 as a prophecy concerning Jesus. Out of Egypt I have called my son. Are these what Jesus is referring to, though? Is this what he's saying? Like, there's a lot of prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah, and those are all going to be fulfilled in me. Certainly these aren't excluded, but he's being much more specific than that. When he says everything the prophets have said is going to be fulfilled for... So in other words, whatever's about to, he's about to say next has already been prophesied. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him. In one sense, there's just this escalation in what Jesus is going to face, isn't there? I mean, it's one thing to be handed over by folks you thought were your friends. He's going to be handed over to the Gentiles. But it's another thing to be mocked. But it's another thing entirely to be shamefully treated and spit upon. 
And if being spat upon is bad, consider being flogged, being beaten, and ultimately killed. Jesus seems to indicate that all that is coming to him as he approaches Jerusalem, all that is about to happen to him in Jerusalem, has already been prophesied. This is one of those passages where we can't claim that Jesus didn't seem to have an understanding of what was happening. Not only did he have an understanding, but he had such a complete understanding that any of us, if we knew this was what our life was leading toward, would be choosing a different direction. And so does the Old Testament specifically point to the treatment that Jesus underwent even on his way to the cross? And so there are several in Isaiah that fulfill this. In Isaiah chapter 50, Uh, You can write these down if you like or flip through if you have a Bible or a Bible app. I'd encourage you to at least write it down so you can make sure I'm not just making these things up. Because I might do that occasionally. I would never do that, by the way. But here we are in Isaiah 50. It's what's called one of the servant songs. From Isaiah 42 on, there are these, these servant songs that are about this servant that's coming. This servant who's going to be uh, somehow doing the will of God, this servant who is yet also a king who's going to bring justice to God's people. He's he's somehow Israel in concentrate, and yet also he is here to deliver Israel. And in Isaiah 50, for the first time, the servant himself speaks. All of the songs prior to this are about the servant, but in the song of the servant in chapter 50, he speaks halfway through. and he, So first, Yahweh, or God, speaks in verses 1 to 3. And then the servant speaks in chap, beginning in chapter 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I did not turn back. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Here is this servant recognizing that there is something coming that is shameful, disgraceful. He's going to have his beard plucked out. He's going to be spat upon. He's going to be beaten on his back. And he knows two things. One, somehow it is Yahweh's plan that this all happened to him. And two, that he will not be abandoned by Yahweh. Though this is his plan, God will not abandon him. In Isaiah 52, verses 13 to 15, this is God now speaking about his servant. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, shall be exalted 
as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And so he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. This servant is going to be so beaten, he will not be recognizable as a human. He will be so beaten, so marred, so disfigured by his treatment that he will not even look like one of the children of man. And somehow the blood that is poured out from him will sprinkle many nations. And probably the most, um, maybe for some, the most well-known passage about prophesying the death of the Son of God or the death of the Messiah or the death of this servant is in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 uh, is an interesting chapter. I learned once, and I haven't been able to fully uh, verify this, but someone told me once that Isaiah 53 is not in the Jewish Bible. The Jewish, what we would call the Old Testament, they wouldn't call it the Old Testament, they would just call it their Bible. Because Isaiah 53 just goes over and over, not only the treatment of this servant, but what it will accomplish. For example, in verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted. And yet he opened not his mouth. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. The most amazing verse in all of it is verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. He has put him to grief. So on one hand, we certainly look at at the cross and the treatment of Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of sinners, and we say, who killed him? And we have to say, from a human perspective, I did. And in another amazing and humbling sense, to ask the question, who killed Jesus? The answer is, God did. In my place. God killed Jesus in my place. By his wounds, I am healed. We cannot diminish the suffering of our Savior on the night that leads up to and even on the cross and in the grave for our sins. A song that we sing every tenebrae, every Good Friday at Hope of Christ Stricken, smitten, and afflicted. 
And I know everyone thinks it's just because I'm a downer and I like somber songs, which is totally true. I do. But I love this song just in the like every verse. It just gets more and more rich. This is just thrown in like the middle. This is verse three of this hymn. So many of us would sing verses one and four growing up of every hymn we ever heard. We didn't even know why there were verses two and three in most of the hymnals. But here's verse three. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here, here at the cross, may view its nature rightly. Here, its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed, son of man, son of God. Jesus says, for now the seventh time, and this time more clearly than any time he has said yet, I am going to suffer and die and rise again. And the disciples don't see it. The disciples can see, but they can't see. And probably the most dangerous thing is when you can't see and you can't see that you can't see. Because then you're walking along as though you can see clearly. The rains are gone. Luke hammers home. He won't even leave it with one sentence. He says it three times just in case we don't see. He says, they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what was said. In one sense, we might understand, though it's not excusable, it might be understandable. As he speaks, perhaps they're thinking, well, surely he can't mean that he's literally going to die and rise again. I mean, that doesn't happen. This must be something like the dying to self that he keeps telling us to do. Die in order to live that he demands of us. This is what he's going to do. This must be it. They can't see. And before we give them a hard time... Have none of you ever experienced that where something is very clearly explained or portrayed and it's not till maybe weeks later, months later, maybe years later that you're like, oh. And if not you, you've experienced it if you're a parent of anything from a teenager older. You have said things to your children over and 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 over again. And then one day, some teacher, some youth pastor, some person walking by says something in a flippant, nonchalant way, and your child acts as though the heavens have been opened for the first time and they've never heard such wisdom from anyone before in their lives. And you just want to rip your hair out. We know this happens. It happened to the disciples. It happens to your teenagers. And so you can be pretty sure you, who once were a teenager, have experienced this as well. And there are so many truths, even in Scripture, that sometimes you read them and you miss them completely. And sometimes you read them and you're like, 
I know this passage. I've read this passage before. Why? It's so alive now. It's so rich. Has this, this verse has always been here? Weird that it's already highlighted. Did someone steal my Bible? In one sense, it reminds us that to see is going to require something. Or to be more accurate, someone. Because it won't be until His resurrection that Jesus Himself, we're told, opens their eyes to see and understand the truths of Scripture about Him. And then in a deeper level, when He pours out the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit comes and opens our eyes and illumines our hearts and enlivens our hearts to the truths of Scripture. That's why I think these two passages go together. Because after leaving us wondering about these disciples who seem like they can see, but it turns out they can't see, we turn and we walk to Jericho with them. And as they approach Jericho, we meet a man who can't see. But it turns out he can see. And because he can see, he can see. Matthew and Mark tell us about this same healing. Matthew gives us one detail more than than Luke about, uh, once again, how Jesus is moved with pity. He's moved by compassion. He feels for the man in his distress and in his need, and his, his, his feeling for the man moves him toward the man. Mark gives us the man's name. His name is Bartimaeus. We're told that he jumps to his feet and he throws off his cloak when Jesus calls him. Luke leaves a lot of the personal details about the man out. And in doing that, he focuses all of our attention mostly on Jesus and what he does and what he says. The man is sitting outside the city gate every day begging, begging for people to see him, begging begging for people to notice him to have compassion, to take pity. And a crowd is going past, and he asks, what's going on? And they tell him, well, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he immediately shouts. He begins to scream, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, Son of David. He addresses him as royalty as the promised fulfillment of the covenant given to David. There will be one who comes after you, who comes from you, who will sit on the throne forever. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy, Eliason, mercy, pity, show compassion, show me undeserved, unmerited concern, and favor. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And throughout the Psalms, this Hebrew word, Hanan, which means favor or grace or mercy, is translated eliason, mercy in the the Greek language. 
At the end of Psalm 23, for example, surely the steadfast love of the Lord and his mercy shall go with me forever. The mercy of God will will dog me all the days of my life. The man is not asking for what he deserves. He's asking for what he needs, what he is desperate for. Have mercy on me. And perhaps the saddest line in the entire account is the crowd shushing him. The crowd telling him, be quiet. Jesus does not have time for you. You know, I I pray that we would never be a congregation that would tell someone they need to stay away until they figure things out first. That you need to figure it out. You need to get right first before you get left. The whole, as we've talked before, the, the idea that you have to behave first. And then... Believe, and then you can belong. We get that so backwards. Jesus says, you belong. And as you are welcomed, you will believe. And when you believe, it will change your behavior. Jesus, we're told that the man just shouts all the more, which is good. And I love how... Don't you love how God is always asking what seem like dumb questions? Like very obvious questions. You know, God says, Adam, where are you? It's like, you don't know where Adam is, God? Adam, did you eat of the tree? Do you not know? That he did? Like, isn't that what you're here talking to him about? I think one of my favorite is often, what's your name? When God says to people, what's your name? As if he didn't know. Here Jesus comes to this man. What do you want me to do for you? Now, are these actually stupid questions? Sorry, dumb questions. Sorry, are both of those bad words? Are these ignorant questions? Haven't you found it sometimes better to help someone find the answer than just announce the answer to them? Like, truths that you learn about yourself, you learn much more deeply, and they stick much more readily if someone helps you discover them rather than someone just announces to you, know what your problem is, you're this. It's like, oh, I didn't know we were playing this game. You know what your problem is? No, how much better to just ask questions. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? He says, Lord, Let me recover my sight. Isn't this awesome? Like <laughs> Luke's, Luke's use of language here is incredible. He says, Lord, let me recover my sight. 
And he said, recover your sight. And he recovered his sight. It's amazing. Now, Jesus adds to recover your sight. A phrase we've heard once already in Luke. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has healed you. Literally, your faith has saved you. Not the, not the faith itself. Not just the, I believe, I believe, I believe. But the object of his faith. His faith in Jesus saved him. How do we know? By the way, this is just like the leper. The ten lepers, the one comes back. He's the only one that's thankful. And Jesus says, go your way. Your faith has saved you. Your faith has made you well. We know with the leper because he came back to praise God and to thank Jesus. Like his life was changed. There was evidence that his faith had saved him. This man, how do we know that he received more than just physical sight that day? Well, the same way we know that the leper received more than just a physical cleansing. We're told that he followed Jesus. He was changed by his encounter with Jesus. He followed Jesus and glorified God. The disciples, for all that they could see, they could not see what they needed most from Jesus. It's too much to consider that, that Jesus would, would be betrayed and insulted and treated shamefully and spit upon and flogged. It's almost too much to hear because it's too much to hear that this is going to happen. I will do nothing. All of these things it will progress and progress and progress and none of us will step in. None of us will say enough. None of us will say stop. And he will eventually be killed. But he will rise on the third day. They could not see how blind and lost they were without Jesus. But they would see, they would see soon enough. The crowds, for all they saw Jesus do, they could not see that they were just like this blind beggar. They were not better off. They had no business rebuking this man. They should have been lifting him up and carrying him to Jesus, saying, look, all you've done for us, surely you can do this for him. It would be nothing for you. They couldn't see that mercy, undeserved mercy, from the Son of David, the Lord, was their only hope. The blind man, for all his blindness, he could see two things clearly. His desperate need and that Jesus could save him from it. So think through this for a moment. And ask yourself, how would you answer 
If Jesus said to you today, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And maybe start simple and start small and simply say, Lord, let me recover my sight. Let me see you. And that would be enough. Let's pray. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, I need to see you. I need to see you when it's dark and I cannot find my way. I need to see you. Let me see you when I'm facing temptation and would rather turn away from you again. Jesus, let me see you when I've fallen again and can only see the bitterness and gall of my own heart. Lift my eyes to see you. See you who have gone to the cross to bear all of the guilt of my sin and are now raised from the dead and interceding in heaven for me. Let me see you, your compassion, your pity, your love. Jesus, we want to see you. Would you let us recover our sight? Amen.